a better world. This is your host, Mitchell J. Raven, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have a very interesting and actually very important show. We're calling it, What About the Birds and the Bees? I'll be interviewing Larissa Walker of the Center for Food Safety. We're going to be taking a look at the plight of bees, of butterflies, of beneficial insects as they face a torrent of chemicalization of our soil, of our air, of our water through ordinary business as usual and what that is doing to our ecosystem. It's so sad. It's so sad. We can only really kind of contemplate it for so long at any one sitting. But there are people and there are organizations that are doggedly working persistently, day by day, hour by hour, for the sake of all and for the bees, the butterflies, the insects, and all sentient life, in fact, on the planet to bring about policy changes that can really make a difference and rein in some of the abuses of our beautiful earth and ecosystem that are occurring day by day through this thing we call business as usual. One of those people is our guest today, the director of the Pollinator Program for Center for Food Safety, Larissa Walker. Larissa, in her role there at the center, integrates national grassroots campaigns with hard-hitting scientific and legal expertise. She works with lawmakers on Capitol Hill and regulators at key government agencies to affect policy change. Larissa spearheads the Center for Food Safety's Pollinators Program, which focuses on protecting bees, butterflies, and, as I mentioned, other beneficial insects from the harms of pesticides. And what can we do about it? Well, toward the end of today's interview and show, you'll learn more about what each of us can do about this. So, Larissa, welcome to A Better World. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Well, I just want to just take my hat off to you for the good work that you have been doing for all of us, you know. You are busy as a bee, no pun intended, down there in Washington, D.C., making things happen while everyone else is more or less going on with uh, the daily buzz of their own lives. Pardon the uh, the bee images, <laughs> but you've uh, you've inspired me. Tell us a little bit about what you are doing in Washington and why. What sure. is the well, issue we're really facing? Sure. So to start, Center for Food Safety, we're, we're a national nonprofit organization, and we work to protect food, farms, and the environment from harmful effects of industrial agriculture. So one of the areas that we work on quite a bit involves protecting people and the environment from the use of toxic pesticides. And that's really what, us got, what got us involved in working on issues with bees and other pollinators years ago. So we were seeing a lot of science come out linking uses of a new toxic class of insecticides to alarming losses of bees and other pollinators. And we've been working hard for the past five-plus years fighting to protect those critical species from these harmful effects. Is that glycosophate? So the what is that in- particular... Sure. So the the class of insecticides that we're extremely concerned about is um, a new class of systemic insecticides called neonicotinoids. Neonics, for short, uh, we often refer to them as, but they Mm -hmm. are um, systemic. So when they are applied to plants, they are actually taken up into the vascular system of plants and expressed in all the plant tissue. So These insecticides were thought to be fantastic, you know, forms of pest control because whenever you had a a pest go and chew on a leaf of a plant or a crop, it would come into contact with this chemical and die. But the chemical goes well beyond the leaves in the plant. It goes everywhere in the plant, including pollen and nectar. And so uh, over time we've realized that these chemicals are horrible for bees and other pollinators that are foraging on many uh, flowering plants and becoming exposed to the chemicals. Very serious. What are the companies that 
are marketing these to industrial agricultural companies. Mm-hmm. There are a handful of agrochemical companies that produce neonics. Uh, the two primary producers are Bayer um, and Syngenta. So um, mm-hmm. they are, are two of the leading producers of these chemicals, but there are, are a handful in the mix. But it's it's interesting because there are many uh, a handful of many powerful agrochemical corporations, and many people think think of Monsanto when they think of chemical companies. Uh, Monsanto, yes. you know, owns so much of our seed supply. And the interesting thing about these chemicals is that one of the the largest way actually that we're using them isn't as a traditional foliar spray. Many people think of insecticides as something we spray onto crops or plants. Mm-hmm. Actually, the the largest single use of neonics is as a coating onto seeds. So it's this quite oh. profitable, um, interesting package that the agrochemical companies have come up with to really maximize their profits, which is to couple the seeds that they own with pesticides yeah. um, as a coating onto seeds so that when farmers are planting these seeds, as the seeds start to grow, they're going to take some of that coating that's on the outside of the seed, and that's going to be incorporated into the plant itself. So that's actually the largest single use of neonics. So are you saying, Larissa, that when the seeds, before they are actually sold, are being bathed in the in the nicotinoid? Is that that's correct, process. yep. Um, so it can come as a bundled package. And I should also point out that while we're really concerned about neonics, that, that they are not the only chemical that is bad for bees. There are many other pesticides, especially insecticides. Bees are insects, so any insecticide, if in, used in high enough quantities, can hurt an insect, including bees. Sure. Um, sure. And just, just as I'm talking about neonics being coated onto seeds, they are not the only chemical coated onto seeds. Again, I think agrochemical companies are very smart <laughs> in that they know they want to yes. do everything they can to maximize their profits, and oftentimes seeds come coupled with not just neonics as a coating, but fungicides on there as well. So, yes, it, they, they can come prepackaged like that. Farmers can buy seeds that are already coming pre-coated. Um, that's very common. In fact, it's estimated that 95 to 99% of all of the corn seed in the United States comes coated with a neonic on it. It's mm. very hard for farmers to find corn seed that is not coated in these chemicals, unless, of course, they're, they're using organic corn seed, which then, of course, would not have it. I was actually just about to ask about that. Uh, do you feel that that part of the marketplace, which is called organic, is mm-hmm. actually able to remain and sustain being organic under these conditions? I do. I mean, of course, there are concerns always with pesticide drift. That's something that you often hear organic farmers talking about, especially as we're seeing these agrochemical companies start to develop um, uh, more toxic, more drift-prone pesticides. We're seeing this now in something we're very concerned about at Center for Food Safety with the onset of um, 2,4-D and dicamba that are going to be coming onto the, the market. They're very prone to drift and volatilization. Um, but with organic, In that, I mean, what we, are they composed of? What what makes them so uh, drift prone? Well, it's their it's their chemical composition. They're very potent herbicides, and they're being introduced to try and deal with some of the issues we're seeing right now with the herbicide Roundup and a lot of the resistance that we're seeing the the weed resistance to Roundup. So the their solution as part of this kind of pesticide treadmill that we often talk to, talk about of just replacing one chemical with the next and and onward and yeah. onward. Um, we're yeah. very concerned about 2,4-D and dicamba being used as replacements to Roundup because they are more toxic. That's why we're going in this direction, because we need something that's more potent to deal with some of these super weeds that farmers are seeing across yes, the country. Yes, because the, the uh, plants are developing resistance, as is Correct. their actual you know, genetic blueprint. Everyone develops resistance, whether it's to antibiotics or anything. It's the nature of survival. It's true, and, and we, we say Mother Nature is 
the smartest of them all. And I think back to yes. your point about organic and the organic industry is just something that they're worried about, certainly. But I, I also think something that's really hopeful for everyone, and especially your listeners, is that we've seen the organic industry really take off. It's it's skyrocketing in, in popularity, yes. and people people want to see more organic options. And, and when I say yes. organic, I do mean USDA certified organic because that certification mm-hmm. is important. It means that the food that we're eating is grown without uses of toxic synthetic agrochemicals, so it means it's healthier for us, but it's also healthier for pollinators and the environment. So it's, it's really that choice um, that's an important one for us to have, and I, and I think it's yes. a really hopeful area we're seeing take off. Thank you for defining that. In fact, how long does the, does the land, the soil, need to be pesticide-free before it could be considered for certification? Organic that's a good certification. question. That's a good question, um, and the USDA has very – there's a national organic program um, and the National Organic Standards Board that review a lot of the policies that go behind that certification, and it's, and it's very robust, and that's what, one of the reasons we think that certification is so important. But with, with the neonics, at least, something that we're concerned about is, is their persistence. It's such an important point you bring up how long pesticides can last in soil. And with neonics, they can last months, they can last years. Uh, In one study, we've seen that they could last up to 19 years in certain soil conditions. Mm. It was a rare soil condition, but it's a soil condition where they're able to to permeate more. Um, It's such a big problem. Very moist conditions. Uh, yeah, more, uh, loose, looser, looser sediment conditions. But we're, one of the things we're mm-hmm. really concerned about is, especially when you think about many of these seeds that are coated in the chemicals being planted year after year, oftentimes the chemicals haven't even uh, broken down from the previous year, and so they're building up in the soil, and that's, oh, that's an issue. Yes. Almost like, right, a reservoir almost. It's just so sad. Now, uh the older story, of course, having to do with um, Monsanto and Roundup, that remains part of the problem. So it's almost like a layered chemicalization is taking place. So rather than, except for the fact, God bless, that uh, the organic uh, marketplace has vastly grown, so the demands on farmers to be organic has incredibly increased so this is very good news at the same time you know industrial agribusiness continues marching on and just as you're saying the neonics are systemic in nature all pesticides in one way or another are systemic in nature so that's the other reason behind the question of how long must uh land lay you know fallow i.e uh protected from uh, insecticides before it's deemed organic soil. Um, so important because everything is systemic. This is what we've learned, of course, about the it's an ecosystem. So when water is polluted in the uh, water table in one part of a, a, a state, well, you know, nature doesn't recognize state boundaries. The water sifts down and drips down to other areas, and right. there's in some way no protection, even though we well, like to think that there is. Mm-hmm. And it's, and I'd it's love to hear your, your comments. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the, that mindset of thinking about the broader ecosystem and, and really looking at these issues holistically is so important and something yeah. I think yeah. we need our regulators at the Environmental Protection Agency and our lawmakers in Congress to do more of. And one of the points I like to often make when I'm speaking uh, to people about these issues is that bees are an indicator species. So, Mm-hmm. Yes, they are incredibly like important frogs. to our, uh, sure, yeah. and they are so important to our food supply. They provide us one in every three bites of food that we eat is reliant upon pollinators, and many of those are, are vegetables, fruits, and nuts, all of which are staples of a healthy diet. But aside from that, that um, that point of why they're valuable to us as humans, they are intrinsically valuable. They are an indicator species, yes. so when they are not doing well, it's pointing to a much larger issue at play. And in this case, 
it's the fact that there is an unhealthy and toxic environment um, that's having much broader repercussions for species beyond bees. So we have seen over the past several years just a, a wide amount of evidence pointing to not just impacts to bees, but impacts to birds, to bats, to butterflies, impacts to entire aquatic ecosystems. There's a ton of research coming out now, and you mentioned water, uh, the neonics are water-soluble, and they're very mobile, and they are <laughs> very easily able to contaminate aquatic ecosystems. So wetlands, streams, rivers, surface puddles, we're seeing a lot of, of buildup of these chemicals throughout our entire environment. Mm, God, Larissa, thanks for making this point, painful as it is. When one looks at the word nicotinoid, one sees at least two things. One, the root of the word nicotine, and also the suffix of the word opioid. So you put them together and bam, you have two of the most toxic and deleterious uh, chemicals that we have on the planet, you know. Could you talk a little bit about that, uh, the nicotine aspect of a nicotinoid and the opioid part of, if there is, in that? Sure. Well, I'm not a chemist, and I, I can't speak to the, the breakdown of these chemicals in too much detail in terms of their, their chemistry sure. makeup, but neonicotinoids are... Um, I think we've called them like a cousin. They, they, they're like a synthetic form of nicotine. They are neurotoxic chemicals. So yes. one of the symptoms of, the of neonicotinoid poisoning with insects is uh, tremors, paralysis, and eventually death. These are very toxic, neurotoxic chemicals. So we're seeing impacts to, to, to neurological impacts to species. Um, but what's interesting with the nicotine connection actually It looks actually like Parkinson's, is, in other words, right? It I, mimics I Parkinson's if it's not that itself. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, we're concerned with the what we would call those are some, some of the symptoms, uh, the tremors and the paralysis would be the chronic impacts, the sublethal impacts we're seeing to species, which... Yeah. can build and build until eventually death is then the acute impact that we're seeing. Um, but with nicotine, yeah. we've we've often made connections to tobacco industry tactics, actually. Um, you know, decades ago when, when Big Tobacco was fighting to keep cigarettes, you know, on the market and keep the, the regulations as favorable to their industries as possible and to deny the yeah. impacts to humans that they were having. We're seeing a lot of the same industry tactics being used right now with neonicotinoids. And so to me, that's an interesting connection to nicotine in a way where it's not talking about chemistry, but rather it's the way that we're seeing these big, powerful um, uh, chemical industries operate to mm. deny the evidence that's coming out, the peer-reviewed independent evidence, and say, no, actually, these pesticides are perfectly fine, especially when used property, properly, um, but there are all these other issues for bees. And deny, 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 and it, it's, a, it's a real issue. Um, you know, I think the upside here is where we've, we're aware of these tactics and we have sound science on our side, um, I think the complicated issue is that the issue of bee declines is a complicated one. Pesticides are not the only issue for bees. They are a leading factor, especially neonics and other highly toxic insecticides, but we know very well that, that bees are being impacted by a loss of habitat. We are seeing a lot of development. They're losing you know, forage across wide landscapes over the country. We're seeing mm -hmm. disease and the spread of disease really take off, and climate change doesn't help that, along with extreme right. weather events. They, have, they are battling parasites. There's a nasty parasitic mite called the varroa mite that's a problem for beekeepers. So there are all of these other factors at play in the issue of pollinator declines. But one point that I like to... Oh, yeah, go ahead. Please. I was going to say I, one point I that I think is important. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 you please. <laughs> I insist. <laughs> one point yes, that's please. important to keep in mind is that beekeepers, um, who are the, the, the stewards, the managers of our honeybees, our managed pollinators, yes. um, unlike wild bees, which, which don't have, um, you know, they're, they're wild, they're native species, 
beekeepers have been battling many of those other factors, such as disease and parasites, for years now. And it's never been so much of a problem that they're worried about their industry collapsing. It was really in the last decade or so that we've seen beekeepers sound the alarm in a way that we hadn't before, that their losses to their honeybee hives had become unsustainable and so high that their industry was at risk. Um, and I think that coincides very clearly with the introduction and extreme spike in use in many of these pesticides, especially the neonicotinoids. Mm, understood. What do you think about the idea of one of the causes of uh, colony collapse, Larissa, being uh, the EMFs from phones, industrial EMFs from high-tension wires on and on, beaming out from our cell towers, etc.? There was a whole theory being floated out about that having a major impact on some kind of frequency level interfering with colonies. You know, I remember hearing about that when I first started working on these issues a little more than five years ago now. And um, I, the, to me, the evidence, I have not seen any evidence that, that's very compelling to indicate that electromagnetic fields are, are an issue for, for bees. I will say, though, that I think there is – that that was maybe brought about as a theory at a time when scientists and beekeepers and the public at large were very confused and alarmed because it was really in 2006 that one commercial beekeeper in particular, a beekeeper in Pennsylvania uh, by the name of Dave Hackenberg, Mm -hmm. sounded the right. alarm and said, I am losing an extraordinary amount of my honeybee colony. Something is not right. You know, beekeepers normally experience a 15%-ish average uh, loss to their colony over winter. That's normal. It's an acceptable loss yes. in the industry. We don't like it, but it's something they've always dealt with. But what was yes. happening in the mid-2000s was beekeepers were seeing 30% losses, 40% losses, 50% losses, some as high as 100% losses of their entire colonies. Oh. And that was Gosh. not normal. Something wasn't right. And so what happened was yes. we had a, a group of scientists, some of whom were at the, the U U.S. Department of Agriculture, the USDA, that were looking into this. And at the time, they kind of dubbed it a, a mysterious phenomenon, and it was called colony collapse disorder, and it was this, this, this mystery. Mm -hmm. We weren't really sure what was happening. And I think perhaps EMS was something that was brought up at that time as a possible theory, but since then, a lot of time has passed, and in the past decade, there has just been a ton. And by a ton, I mean a, a thousand studies. There was a great um, review that happened several years ago by a – a subgroup under the IUCN um, called the Task Force on Systemic P uh, Pesticides, and they reviewed more than a 1,000 studies looking at impacts of neonics and other systemic insecticides. Um, and there is a ton of evidence showing that, yes, this is a reason to be concerned and we need to do something about these issues with pesticides. When did neonics sort of replace Monsanto's Roundup as the leading cause? of bee uh, pollution, i.e. polluting the bees, I mean, mm -hmm. and destroying so, the colonies. Sure. So I, I should take a step back and clarify that uh, Monsanto's Roundup is an herbicide. It's the, one of the most popular pesticide on the market because it goes hand-in-hand -hand with Roundup-ready crops. It is still used today despite those resistance issues that we talked about and the problems that we're seeing with it. But that herbicide is still on the market. Neonicotinoids were actually introduced to the market as a new type of systemic insecticide to replace organophosphates and carbamates, older classes of harsher insecticides. And by harsher, I mean um, harsher for humans. And so we were seeing concerns mm -hmm. with exposure, uh, farm worker exposure and exposure to other, other humans handling these chemicals with organophosphates and carbamates. So neonicotinoids mm -hmm. were introduced to the market as what the industry was claiming would be a safer alternative, right? And in, 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 to that end, they were thinking, well, if we coat these things onto seeds, it's less that the farm workers may need to be exposed to actually like drift from spraying um, and in that end. But there were all of these clearly un unanticipated consequences of using such a massive amount of chemicals that were highly toxic 
to insects and systemic. So the neonics were new, but we're replacing those older classes of insecticides um, and not so much competing with herbicides like Roundup. I see. But when do you say this new class ah. uh, sort of entered the marketplace? Yeah. Sure. So they, the majority of the neonics really took off in the mid-2000s. Again, okay. not coincidentally, perhaps right around the time that we saw CCD become a buzzword, a big issue. So around 2004, mm-hmm. 2005, 2006, they started being used very heavily as seed coatings. The first neonic, which is a chemical called imidacloprid, was actually introduced in the U.S. in 1994 and registered here, but it wasn't until the mid-2000s that a handful of other neonicotinoid chemicals were introduced that that really spiked um, the amount that we, we saw them on the market. And I know we touched upon it, but what have you seen as the effect, Larissa, on human health? It's a good question, and it's one that everyone always always asks, and that's important. We need to be mindful of that. I um, don't like to be alarmist, and I do like to say that the evidence is still preliminary. We are seeing a handful of studies come out indicating potential threats to mammalian, mammalian toxicity threats, humans being one of them. Um, most of these are done on rats and labs, of course, but, um, you know, I think the, what I would be concerned about in terms of a human health perspective is that uncertainty. The uncertainty is always scary, right? I mean, we are, these chemicals have only been on the market in heavy use for a decade or so. So we know that for a handful of species, bees being one of them, that these chemicals can build up and have these chronic sublethal impacts over time. And I don't think we have enough information to know that that's not happening to humans or to confirm that it is. But I think that uncertainty is something that we need to be talking about and especially um, bringing up with with lawmakers and regulators. Well, I think you're being extraordinarily gentle about the subject. <laughs> and, uh, I Some of the work that I do involves biofeedback and energy medicine, and I see um, chemicalization of human tissue in my biofeedback system routinely. And it's definitely permeating. In fact, if you think about it just commonsensically, it can't not. If we're eating the foodstuffs, if we're playing in the soil, uh, et cetera, et cetera, it's getting into us. It's getting lodged sort of the way heavy metals get lodged in our tissue. So it's there, and as you're saying, it is building up. And in some cases, I think there are probably some pretty serious neurotoxic results that have shown up, as you did indicate before. And not just that, I mean just pure organic. Our bodies are not are not built to deal with this level of synthetic poison. And I, I do think that we really have to be pretty straight with people about what it is that's going on here. Um, painful as it is, hopefully that pain and the reason the body experiences pain is to alleviate it so we can resolve it and move on. And that can uh, really um, instigate and initiate change in people's behaviors and people's attitudes and actions. So, uh, right, and I think, I, just, I think one of the great yeah. things about this issue is that people really care about bees. And it was something I was yeah. not expecting when I started working on this issue. My background was, was in agriculture and sustainable food systems, and I hadn't worked really on, on insect or wildlife conservation. But when I started working on these issues, people really care about bees, and rightfully so. Yeah. They are critical yeah. to not just our food supply but to our environment. And one of the, the great things about this issue is it is, get, it is getting people talking. People are aware of problems with pesticides, not just neonics, but, but the rampant use of so many pesticides in our food supply. Yes. And, and as we talked yes. about, people are starting to make those uh, deliberative choices and support organic when they can afford it and, you know, support organic agriculture, support their local farmer, support yes. their local beekeeper. And beyond that, beyond just... Um, you know, voting with their wallet, they are taking action at the local level. And that's been something that's been very inspiring to see with this 
pollinator protection movement, right, where we have not seen meaningful action at the federal level, unfortunately. Regulators are dragging their feet. They're reluctant to take action on these chemicals and really restrict or, or hopefully suspend uses of these chemicals and find something safe um, or encourage more agroecological alternatives. There are better ways to deal with pests, and we know this. We yeah. have so much good science out there. But instead, where regulators are in absence of that, that federal action, we're seeing average citizens, you know, advocates. We're seeing home gardeners and, and urban farmers. We're seeing entire neighborhoods and communities band together and create pockets of, of, of pesticide-free areas, basically safe havens for bees. They're taking that control into their own hands, and it's been oh, really inspiring so to wonderful. see. Yeah, yep. we're going to get right back to that. I just have to let everyone know you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. and throughout the week. And uh, you don't even care because you listen whenever you want, and that's just fine. As long as you tune in and listen and hear people like Larissa Walker talking about the birds and the bees and the butterflies and the insects and what it is we're facing uh, as a species and what we're doing to others and what we can do about that. So I'm very glad you're joining us. Remember also that we have a uh, website on which you can sign up for our weekly free newsletter, a Better World newsletter at abetterworld.tv, www. I understand I don't have to say those three W's anymore, but abetterworld.tv. And every Monday evening, in fact, we're on in Manhattan on community television, A Better World TV at 7 p.m., which you can watch if you are living in or visiting Manhattan at 7 p.m. any Monday night or online at our website, betterworld.tv at the top. It says, watch here, and then click through, and then it says, watch live, and voila, you will be there. So please join us. Uh, we are always talking about matters such as this, having to do with health and healing and wellness and the environment and the earth and protecting her and understanding neuroscience and ourselves and why we behave the way we do. And that really, Larissa Walker, opens up the next question I have. How are, you mentioned the regulators not being that responsive, but when you meet on Capitol Hill with senators and congressmen and women, and you're sitting at their desk face-to-face, which I'm hoping that you do, uh, what are the responses when you lay out the true seriousness of the situation, that all of these people have children and grandchildren in most all cases. What are they thinking and what do they say to you? Well, I don't think anyone denies that pollinators are important. I've never met a regulator, a lawmaker in Congress, or a farmer who says, I don't care about pollinators, I don't care if they're dying from pesticides. I think we start with agreeing these are critical species uh, to our food system and our environment, as we've talked about. But I think where there are differences is how we want to tackle the issue of their declines and what, what is needed most to protect them. And there's a divide. Certainly we do have, um, a handful of, of phenomenal members of Congress that have introduced legislation, um, particularly one bill that, that, stands out in my mind as as kind of our gold standard. It's called the Saving America's Pollinators Act, and it was introduced by Representative John Conyers and Representative Earl Blumenauer. And that bill would seek to suspend the four most toxic neonics until EPA has the data to show that they're safe. Um, because unfortunately they were allowed to be on to the, go onto the market without adequate testing and, and risk assessments done. Um, so that bill is out there, and I encourage all of your listeners to When contact. was that introduced? So that's introduced, um, it's been introduced in the last several Congresses in each session. Um, we are, it, it's supposed to be introduced this Congress soon. Um, I think we're, we're waiting any, any moment now it will be introduced. Uh, Congress has had a handful of other things they're also dealing with, so it's not yet been reintroduced this Congress, <laughs> yeah, but like it will be. Yeah, like the impeachment be. of a president. <laughs> For, yeah, yeah, please go so on. So we, we are expecting it to be introduced soon, um, and I would, I would just say that 
your listeners don't need to wait for it to be reintroduced to contact their members of Congress, whether they're their representatives or their senators. They should contact both and say, this issue is important for me. What are you doing yes. about the pesticide issue in particular? And I say that because I mentioned before that there's a divide. There's a little bit of a difference in how members of Congress and even regulators at EPA and USDA may respond. Oftentimes we'll see them want to only really look at the issue of habitat and, hey, how can we get more forage for bees? How can we plant more flowering plants? And that's fine. That's well and good. We, we of course, want more habitat mm -hmm. for bees. But I think sure. the point needs to be made that that habitat, if it becomes contaminated with neonics or other pesticides, it's just another sink. It's another route of exposure for these creatures, these species, to come into contact with them, and it's, and it's going to do more harm than good. So we need to make sure both are happening. We need to make sure the pesticide yeah. issues are being tackled and we're removing these harmful pesticides from the market, and at the same time, creating habitat that is free of contamination from harmful pesticides. They're both, they're both yes. really valuable. Yes, good point. So what, what, I'm just curious about what point the regulators are making I do you feel because you said that they were a bit resistant uh do you feel that they are simply apologists for the agribusiness industry who are lining their pockets i mean what what do you see face to face and when you look at these folks in the eye because the matter is all a matter of life and death, so I'm just wondering if on a human level they are actually right with you, but they allow their business interests to supersede? What what do you experience when you're kind of face-to-face -face with dealing with policy issues and legislation? Well, I think one of the things I see, uh, let's take, for instance, the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, in terms of the work that's going on there, I've been, I think there are a lot of really good scientists at the Environmental Protection Agency, and we've seen their work that shows concern about these chemicals. Um, and to that we've seen, for instance, when EPA is considering approving a pesticide, they have to have a risk assessment done. And to that, their internal scientists at the EPA need to take into account all the potential risks that might come from uses of these. And with neonics, we've looked at those past risk assessments that were done by agency scientists, and they were good. I mean, agency scientists did express concerns about neonics. They, it's very clearly written in the risk assessments that these are highly toxic to honeybees and will pose threats to honeybees and other pollinators, that they'll, they, are, they have a propensity for, for lasting a long time in the environment. But there is mm -hmm. a disconnect, I think, in a lot of our agencies, and EPA is one example, where there are really great scientists that are doing this important work, but then um, at least in, in more of a regulator sphere, there's a, a registration division, the, the folks there who are making the decisions on giving a stamp of approval to pesticides. And that's where we've expressed concerns before about the revolving door between industry and EPA. Um, you know, I think there yeah. is a long history at EPA within their Office of Pesticide Programs to give stamp of, stamps of approval to pesticides. It's, it's very rare that EPA pulls a pesticide from the market. More often than not, they're just approving new chemicals to come onto the market. They're in the business of approving pesticides, not uh, restricting them. And that's a difference, I think, in just our our system here in general in the United States. We don't have the we don't operate with the precautionary approach as say European Correct. regulators may. But um, it, it's a real issue, and I think the issue we're looking at with neonics and pollinators is a, a is a prime example of the flaws in our regulatory system. We would say that it's broken, that that the way that we're on this pesticide treadmill and. Um, are constantly just looking to replace one chemical when it stops being effective with another and often a more toxic one, that that's not sustainable. That's not the direction we want our food system to be going in, that that's not the direction that we should be taking from an environmental health standpoint. Um, so we need to really redirect and, and shift the way that we're doing a lot of these things.
Absolutely. You know, I would say this is what has become of the EPA, that its original charge was to do just that, not to be a rubber stamp of chemicals, but to be precautionary and use science as the basis for decision-making about what gets passed and what does not, or what modifications would need to take place to keep the food chain healthy. And we know that big business and fat wallets have changed the course and the purport of the agency. I'm wondering if what you see now during the Trump administration has been a vast departure from the Obama administration in respect to the specific work we're doing? I mean, we know that Scott Pruitt is an oil and gas guy, a fracking guy, that he sued the EPA for 14 years, and he, uh, 14 times, I mean, and he has no business from our point of view in that position. Well, from that point of view, we don't believe that Trump should be in that position either. That's a whole other conversation. But uh, I was wondering if sometimes when you get down into the particulars of an area of interest, such as what you're doing with bees and butterflies and beneficial insects, there could still be pockets of rational scientific thinking that has not yet been corrupted by the head of the EPA or others with private interests, and the good work still gets to get done. What are you seeing as the of this new administration on the level on which you're interacting with the EPA? Mm -hmm. Well, I think a lot remains to be seen. I think um, (laughs) for better or for worse, there's a lot of chaos right now in D.C. um, And I think at least at EPA, we know that a lot of the positions that are normally filled still need to be filled, and they're still kind of in that transition of transitioning into this new administration. And so, you know, I think they're still figuring out what that's going to look like for the agency and and how that's going to happen. We, of course, heard reports that there are going to be massive layoffs with EPA with potential budget cuts, and that's going to be a, a big issue that I would be concerned about. But from what we do know in terms of how this administration has operated thus far with respect to pesticide issues, there was a um, instance uh, several weeks ago, a couple months ago actually now, uh, time flies, um, when mm-hmm. the Trump administration and, and uh, EPA administrator Scott Pruitt under that decided to kind of reverse course on a decision that was made by the Obama administration EPA, and that was re- with respect to a very – toxic, harsh insecticide called chlorpyrifos. It is an organophosphate insecticide, so it's one of those that I mentioned earlier that was the class we were trying to move away from with neonics and mm-hmm. organophosphate and chlorpyrifos. And chlorpyrifos, there is such a strong amount of evidence and, and real human case studies to point to where um, farm workers and children are being exposed to these chemicals and it is so toxic to people and having really mm-hmm. alarming effects on them. And the Obama administration's EPA had set this chemical up to be removed. And um, unfortunately, it, hadn't, it, did, it was not finished by the time that the Trump administration took office. And so that was kind of left on their desk as something that they could move forward with. And unfortunately, they decided to reverse course and came out with an announcement saying they would not be moving forward to ban chlorpyrifos and instead will be mm looking into it and reevaluating, I I suppose. And that was a very disappointing uh, development for a lot of the folks in our our environmental community. It was a lot of years of really hard work by a number of nonprofit organizations and and attorneys went into this effort to get chlorpyrifos banned. And I think that that sets a strong – it sends a strong message, and we're worried it's setting a precedent for how things may or may not develop with respect to other pesticides that are also shown to be harmful. Mm -hmm. But we're only only a few months – well, six months in, so I I suppose we need more time to see what else – how things shake out. But that was not a good development by any means. Yes, that is not a good development at all. You know, this is going to sound harsh in the midst of talking about harsh chemicals, but, you know, in my worldview, and I I look at things often through the lens of a 
psychotherapist because that's my background. And what I see is pathology that is rampant. And uh, I'm talking about emotional and psychological pathology, which would allow people uh, in positions of power to put uh, profits above and before people and planet. You know, it's the old Green Party platform, but it's also that of a better world as an organization. And I think a case could be made in the right legal hands that what is going on, Larissa, is nothing short of homicide. It's a subtler form of homicide. It's like a slowly time-lapsed poison. But it is poison, and it is ultimately lethal to us humans, mammals, and other species, as you indicated earlier. I wonder if there were a law firm on the green side of things that could actually mount such a case as this. Instead of pussyfooting around about how many parts per billion of lead is acceptable and cadmium is acceptable and neonics are acceptable for human health. We say none of it is acceptable because it's actually poison and toxic. How much arsenic is acceptable? None. None. So you see what I'm saying. We can look at flint. We can look at lead. We see the children. We see the families. And we see that a few officials are being tried now for manslaughter. I don't think it's gone far up enough on the food chain there because I'm quite sure. Uh, I don't have this factual, but, you know, people at the top, including the governor's office and the governor, know and knew exactly what was going on because these guys kind of guys make decisions like this all day long. They don't think twice about the minority and ethnic groups that are being affected or children that are being affected affected if it's going to save them money. Now, I know I'm mixing a couple of issues here, you know, like stirring the waters, no pun intended, but uh, I'm just wondering, you're right smack in the middle of this. What are your thoughts about something like this? Well, I think one one thing that comes to mind for me is we often say that uh, neonics are leading us toward a second Silent Spring. Rachel Carson's mm, famous yeah. book, Silent Spring, um, sure. is such a powerful book for me in my, my yes. studies, learning about environmental of issues. Course. and. She has a quote in, in her book that says, Can anyone believe it is possible to lay down such a bar- barrage of poisons on the surface of the earth without making it unfit for all life? They should not be called insecticides, but biocides. And that term, biocides, is quite relevant. And neonics didn't exist at the time that Rachel Carson wrote those words in Silent Spring, but I think we would argue, I would argue, that her argument, her points apply perfectly more than 50 years later to the current day situation we're seeing right now. And, you know, it seems like in some ways we haven't learned our lessons, that um, everything that she was writing about and her concerns with DDT, they still exist. Yeah. They're new chemicals, but those problems still exist. And I think, again, we need to be thinking of this this broader holistic, um, full ecosystem kind of impact, um, not just... yeah. Right. Very agreed. Well put, well put. Dear Larissa Walker, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on our show today. If you would, uh, I mean, alarming as it is, and I know you tried to sugarcoat it and make it seem all nice, but not really. And the work you're, you're in the trenches, and I just really have amazing respect for what you and the Center for Food Safety are doing on behalf of all of us uh, with your good work. So if you would, uh, if you would give us your website and also lay out what the listeners can do to help support your efforts. Sure. So listeners – 
every, all of us as, as individuals can do so much to help bees and other pollinators. The first thing is to become educated on the issues, learn more about what we spoke about today and so much more. Our website, centerforfoodsafety.org, has tons of information on it. There's an entire page about our pollinator campaign with lots of information and, and studies and steps you can take to get involved. But a quick short list for your listeners. I would say first things first, stop using, if you are, hopefully you're not using pesticides in your own backyards and gardens. Um, we have a great list of resources on our website that gives you a list of the neonic products at least to avoid if you want to know um, what products those chemicals are in. Second thing, plant pollinator-friendly flowers and try to make sure that they're native to your region. Native species are the best to plant, but get those uh, flowering plants in your backyard. Bees need forage, and that would be really helpful. The third thing you can do is create nesting sites. Uh, just like honeybees live in hives, many species of wild bees, and there are many, we have more than 4,000 species of wild native bees in North America, and they need safe habitats as well. So in nature, they find uh, those habitats in the ground, in um, old beetle tunnels or cracks in wood and other tiny corners. You can create some of your own with wooden blocks or you know bundles and kind of just letting nature be a little bit more... Um, messy in your backyard uh, and there's mm -hmm. more information on our website about that um before messy you buy backyard plants, yeah just a little bit i mean we're not we're, we're like not that. fans of uh of a uh, green lawns manicured lawns we like to see more wild yeah. habitats um so yeah. get those get the variety of species and and although um, there is by the way a new kind of lawn it's actually not so new, but it was new to me. I just found out about it recently at the Green Festival at the Jacob Javits Center mm -hmm. a week ago. And it's a tall grass that's actually eco-friendly mm -hmm. and very easy to maintain and manage, an entirely well, different kind of approach. That's that good cool? news, but I would I would still yeah. say I would think it's cooler if it had flowers that came as part of it, which probably doesn't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, we need I to make agree sure with you, sure. Flowering plants. <laughs> right. um, and then I would say, you know, to your listeners, to support organic, make sure that the food you're eating is not grown with these chemicals. You can also do your part by whenever you're going out and buy, buying plants for your backyard or gardens to make sure you're asking your nursery supplier if the plants were pre-treated with neonicotinoids. That's something that's very common, though we are seeing a shift in the nursery um, and, and garden businesses to move away from them. But a lot of the plants we're buying that are pollinator-friendly are unfortunately coming with these chemicals already in them, and that's obviously a big problem. And the last step I would say would be make sure to get involved and engage your community. You as an individual have the power to do a lot, but by banding with your community, by trying to make your neighborhood be safe, talk to your neighbors. See if they'll also commit to stop using pesticides in their properties. Make a much larger area of pollinator-friendly, pesticide-free habitat for bees and other species. I mean, I think that would be great. We're seeing this happen all across the country, and the more it happens, the better. So you are seeing this kind of trend very yes. clearly. Yep. Dozens of cities across Isn't the country have passed much. resolutions to eliminate these pesticides on city properties. We've seen residents and neighborhoods band together and say, we're all not using these products. This is a be safe neighborhood, and that's wonderful. It's inspiring. It's more of it needs to happen. And again, if you're overwhelmed by everything I just said and want more information, check out our website, which is centerforfoodsafety.org. <laughs> you get even more overwhelmed. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, what, if you wouldn't mind, just in closing, give us one or two of the cities that are becoming be safe and be friendly. Be friendly. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Boulder, Colorado was one of the first, actually, in the country, I believe, I to become a beat to become a be safe neighborhood, and we're, we're big fans of Boulder. Um, and I can take it one step further and say an entire state that's done really great work actually has been the state of Maryland, not too far from D.C. here, which not really? only passed a bill that restricts uses of neonics, but also then another bill more recently this year, which requires pollinator habitat to be free of these pesticides. So it was a, a double whammy and lots of great stuff oh. happening in Maryland. But they're wow. not the only ones, that but you did say too. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's news. great. I'm feeling inspired. <laughs> so thank you, Laura. Uh, Larissa, I so appreciate it. 
You're doing a great job. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to your listeners about these issues. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So appreciate Thank it, Larissa. You. Larissa Walker of the Center for Food Safety has been sharing with us all of this rich, important information. Some of it painful, yes, for sure, but the rest really uplifting because for whatever reason, it looks like the old words of Thomas Jefferson remain resonant and true, and that is the price of freedom is eternal vigilance, and that's vigilance across the board in every aspect of our lives. Ultimately, it is not government. It is ourselves that are going to be the ones that we've been looking for, that we are the ones who are going to be creating safe havens, safe for bees and butterflies. We didn't get a chance to talk about those beautiful beings, but they are inherent in the story. So this needs to all be taken to heart. It makes me actually very emotional. This is not a scientific matter. This is actually a deeply spiritual one. This is our relationship to nature herself, from which, from whom we come. Yes, we we come from our local mother, our local biological mother. It's true. But when you trace back and trace back and trace back, we are all born of Mother Nature. And, well, it has taken our listening to the indigenous people because the rest of us folks seem to be very slow learners. But the native peoples across the planet have been reminding us that our planet is our mother and we need to regard her as such with that kind of love and that kind of care and that kind of respect. So when you come from that place, it puts everything into perspective. And you don't have to be measuring out the amount of neonics per, you know, per gallon to decide whether it's something that should be allowable or not. I like to see the chemical industry and the agribiz industry diversify. That's what. Into what, you could ask? Well, how about organic farming? It's a boon. Lots of money. It's a good thing. I also like to remind you of an interview I did with Deborah Coons Garcia on The Symphony of the Soil, her wonderful film that talks about the soil and organic growing as a means of powerful carbon sequestration because one issue dovetails with another. It truly is a holistic ecosystem, as Larissa was saying. And we're dealing with climate change, we're dealing with extreme weather, and we need to sequester the vast amounts of carbon, which are otherwise wonderful, but are in excess, and that is helping to tilt the natural balance of things on our planet and uh, in nature. So with that said, I want to just thank Larissa again, Larissa Walker of Center for uh, Food Safety for being a guest today. I want to thank all of you for coming again to A Better World and listening in. And take this link and forward it to your friends and your family and your local farmers and your local chemical companies and the CEOs and the CFOs and all of that because we're the ones who are going to be making a difference. Remember that we here at A Better World are a 501c3, a nonprofit. We survive and sustain through your kind generosity and investing in a better world. So please visit us on our website to uh, make donations as well to us. I want to just say thank you again. I love your emails to mjr at abetterworld.net. That's my initials, mjr at abetterworld.net. Thanks so much for joining, and I look forward to seeing you all next week. 